Hi everyone, I'm Madden. And I'm Zoe. And this is the Unnamed Doe Podcast. Today, I'm bringing you a pretty bizarre case of a Jane Doe whose embalmed head, and only her head, was found in a wooded area. This may be one of the strangest cases we have covered, so buckle up. This is the story of the woman with no body. As you could probably tell from our introduction to this episode, this case does involve a severed head. So some of the details of this case are quite detailed and can be graphic. I wanted to give you this as a content warning so that you could skip this episode if you wanted to. But if you still want to hear about it, but not hear the more gruesome parts of it, I'll also be giving small content warnings throughout so you can just skip ahead a couple of minutes and rejoin us. If you're still with us, here's a different warning. There is a picture out there of the crime scene, and you can see the head that was recovered. Of course, we will not be posting that image anywhere, but it is out there and it is even on some of the resources I used to put this case together. So just please be careful when you research this case. With that said, let's get into it. On December 12th, 2014, a quote-unquote school-aged boy was walking near a wooded area around 12.30 in the afternoon. As he walked, he made a terrible discovery. About 31 feet from the road was the severed head of an elderly woman. The boy called 911 and calmly told the operator, quote, I found a human head, end quote. I could not imagine being that boy and calmly calling 911. I would be insanely out of my mind. He was very nonchalant about it. I can't imagine finding that. I mean, I feel like he must have been in some sort of shock. I was just about to say he had to have been in shock. Investigators determined that the head had been placed there by someone. There were no animal bite marks on the head and no evidence to indicate that it had been carried there by a wild animal. Police used cadaver dogs to search the area for the rest of Jane Doe's body, but they didn't find anything. The head had been located off of Mason Road in Economy, Pennsylvania, and it had been there anywhere between a week and a month. Economy is a town northwest of Pittsburgh, and Mason Road is a smaller road that runs through a pretty rural area. However, one article from the Times, written in 2022, notes that even though the head was found in a fairly rural area of economy, the location was easily accessible from multiple larger locations, including Interstate 79, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and State Route 65. Zoe, that same article also provides an aerial photo of the location where the head was found. Take a look at that. I mean, this just looks like a rural area. I mean, the roads aren't big roads or anything like that. It looks like there's a house or two, maybe like a small little pond and just a lot of trees. Just a very rural area. Yeah, exactly. Now, when police performed a physical examination of the remains, they made some startling discoveries. They discovered that the head had been embalmed, but investigators couldn't determine when the embalming had taken place before the discovery of the remains. All right, if you don't want to hear this next part, go ahead and skip because I'm about to do a deep dive into how the embalming process actually works. Really took one for the team here. Not a fan of embalming processes. You're a trooper for this case. Thank you. Okay, I got most of my information from Britannica, but if you want even more information about embalming, there is a lot of sources out there for you. I stuck to the encyclopedia because I'm a chicken. So. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wise. Mm-hmm. So first off, embalming is the process of treating a dead body to sterilize it and protect it from decomposition. 
Preserving bodies has a long history and it's been done for both practical and religious reasons. Some cultures and religions have extended mourning periods where the body of the deceased, for various reasons, is kept in its original condition for an amount of time that would normally lead to advanced decomposition. Before we reached our modern techniques for embalming, many different techniques were used throughout history. Embalming started with the ancient Egyptians, who had several embalming techniques, including mummification. For mummification, the Egyptians surgically removed the vital organs, washed them in palm wine, and placed them in canopic jars, which were basically vases filled with herbs. The cavities of the body were then filled with powder and scented perfumes and resins. The incisions made in the body were stitched up and the body was covered with something called natron. Natron is essentially a form of salt or hydrated sodium carbonate. Once the body was dried out, it was washed and wrapped in cotton bandages before being dipped into a quote-unquote gummy substance and entombed. Different, cheaper embalming techniques also existed in ancient Egypt, but in the interest of time, I won't describe them in great detail. Other techniques from around the world throughout history have included bodies being pickled in vinegar, wine, and other spirits. One British admiral was preserved in a case of brandy. In ancient Greece, embalming was not common practice. This was because they expected their heroes and warriors to be strong in death as well as life. But even they did it occasionally. Alexander the Great, for example, was preserved in a container full of honey. The name embalming comes from the English, who used to apply spices and strong fragrances to mask decay. For them, the word embalming quite literally meant, quote, to put on a balm, end quote. Now, obviously, the word has come to mean a much more invasive process of preserving remains to prevent decomposition from happening. Modern embalming, as we think about it today, has been around for a few centuries. Modern embalming really gained traction after a woman named Mrs. Van Butchel died. A man named John Hunter, whose older brother is credited with discovering how to embalm using arteries and body cavities, embalmed Mrs. Van Butchel. Mrs. Van Butchel had decreed in her will that her husband could only access her fortune as long as her body was above the ground. Oh my gosh, <laughs> no. no. Oh my god. Yep. Her husband, obviously wanting to access her fortune as long as possible, but not live with a highly decomposing body, sought to have her embalmed. The embalming procedure was successful, and he kept her quote-unquote fashionably dressed, embalmed body in a glass lid case in his sitting room. The things people do for money. <laughs> she was like, you're not getting my money. He was like, bet. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> embalming really grew from there, so let's get into how embalming as we know it today actually works. First, the funeral director or whoever's doing the embalming drains the blood from the body using one of the body's veins. Then, a different fluid is injected back into the arteries to be circulated throughout the body. According to Britannica, this fluid is usually based on formalin, which is formaldehyde diluted with water. Next, any fluids in the cavities of the body are removed with a long, hollow needle called a trocar. These cavity fluids are replaced with more preservatives, also based on formalin, but with other additives mixed in, like embalming fluid. This keeps the body from shriveling up and turning brown. However, embalming is only a temporary process, and bodies on display for extended periods of time have to be re-embalmed from time to time. After the embalming process, things like makeup and other cosmetic products are applied to the body to make it visible for viewing. Embalming is very popular in the United States, but actually not so much in Europe. I was not expecting that. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the end of our embalming deep dive. If you're still with us, I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, I'm sorry. Zoe, sorry <laughs> to hold you hostage for that. Let's get back to what else investigators discovered about the embalmed head. 
I know we just ended a section where I gave you a content warning, but I'm going to give you another small content warning here because we're going to discuss some more graphic details about Jane Doe. Her head had been cleanly severed through the arteries and the muscles of the neck, but interestingly, there was a quote-unquote crude and jagged cut across the skin of the neck at the front. During the autopsy, it was also discovered that Jane Doe's eyes had been removed. According to the investigators, whoever had removed Jane Doe's eyes likely had anatomical knowledge. They were really cleanly removed and professionally done. But not only had Jane Doe's eyes been removed, they had also been replaced with red rubber balls. These were like the small red rubber bouncy balls that you would get from like a quarter machine. Was this something that's common to do during embalming? Very much not. The rubber balls had been covered with tan eye caps, and these are frequently used by funeral homes to prepare the body for public viewing. But the red rubber balls were far from standard practice at funeral homes or anywhere else. This was basically unheard of. This is really weird. Now, like we mentioned earlier, the embalming and clear anatomical knowledge led police to believe that this Jane Doe may have come from an institution where embalming was common, like a funeral home, a medical school, or another institution where cadavers are embalmed and used for research purposes. The police reached out to funeral homes and other institutions across the country to see if they had any missing bodies but no one they talked to was missing a body. Remember that this Jane Doe was discovered in 2014, so DNA was already in use in the world of forensics. Investigators did turn to DNA, hopeful that they would finally have an identity for Jane Doe, but there was a problem. The embalming fluids had degraded any DNA present in the remains. DNA could not be successfully extracted. Investigators have worked with multiple labs to attempt to extract DNA, but they have been unsuccessful every time. Economy Police Chief Michael O'Brien said, quote, We've been told by everybody that's done the testing for us that the sample was deteriorated by the embalming fluid. There's been a couple of labs who thought that they could get around that with the new technological advances in DNA sequencing, but they were unable to get the information as well. We've always had hope that as time moves forward and scientists work to improve all of this stuff, that maybe we can get a DNA sample. End quote. Even though investigators weren't able to get DNA despite multiple attempts, they're not letting that stop them from trying to get this Jane Doe identified using other forensic techniques. One technique used by investigators was isotope testing. We've covered isotope testing pretty extensively on this podcast, but just as a refresher, isotope testing helps determine where someone might have lived during certain periods of their life. Isotope testing indicated that Jane Doe had likely grown up and died in the regions surrounding the Allegheny Mountains. For anyone unfamiliar, the Allegheny Mountains run from the northern central part of Pennsylvania, south through western Maryland, and eastern West Virginia. They actually run parallel to the Appalachian Mountains, they're just smaller and slightly more west. Hair and tooth enamel testing revealed that in the seven months prior to her death, Jane Doe had possibly moved up to four separate times. More testing of Jane Doe's remains revealed another key part of her life. Testing performed on her hair revealed lidocaine and atropine. Both of these medications can be used for heart conditions, which led investigators to determine that she might have died of a heart condition or even cardiac arrest. Either way, she likely died of natural causes, which means that police are searching obituaries and death records instead of missing person databases. Do they have any idea how long prior to her discovery in the woods that she would have died? I know that she died of natural causes, but can they determine when she may have died to help narrow down the search for their death records and obituary searches? The embalming makes that difficult to do. 
I did see that she likely died after 2004, and I'll tell you why we know that later, but it's likely she died within the 10 years before she was discovered. Okay, gotcha. Like I said, police can't really search missing person databases in this case, but they're leaving no stone unturned and they have searched them extensively just in case. As of 2022, the police have pursued hundreds of leads since 2014, but nothing has gotten them any closer to Jane Doe's true identity. Investigators also turn to another forensic technique we've discussed in depth on this podcast, forensic facial reconstructions. Michelle Vitali of the Edinburgh Institute for Forensic Science helped create a clay reconstruction and drawings of what Jane Doe might have looked like. Zoe, I have pictures for you here of both the clay reconstruction and the drawings. The reconstructions on the left are what Jane Doe might have looked like right before she died, and the ones on the right are what Jane Doe might have looked like in her 30s. So they are actually age regressions, which we don't see very often. I love when we see age regressions. I think they're so interesting and so cool. I'm looking at the clay reconstructions, and there's not really anything too distinctive. I mean, you can see a clear age regression slash progression between the two reconstructions. Like, you can tell that this is from the same person. She has a somewhat large-ish nose, but not really. It's, like, really proportional to her face. Her face is just really proportional, and nothing's, like, sticking out at me as unique or distinguishing. And I'm kind of surprised, but the older clay reconstruction and the older drawing kind of look pretty similar. Like, in the eyes specifically, I can see a lot of similarities. The mouth is very different. In the clay reconstruction, her mouth is more kind of sunken in, if that makes sense. Kind of if she had dentures, but in the drawing, her lips are out more like she didn't have dentures. And the younger version of the drawing, like, it's harder to see the regression between the images. Now, these reconstructions were based on what investigators knew about Jane Doe's physical characteristics. She was likely a white, 60 to 80 year old woman. Some sources say 50 years old, so I don't know what the official age estimate is, but I think everyone agrees she's no younger than 50. Her hair was curly and styled, and it was whitish gray in color. Jane Doe had a full set of teeth, and investigators were able to take x-rays of them. Jane Doe had had a lot of dental work done throughout her life. Dentists at the University of Buffalo School of Dental Medicine were able to figure out that every single tooth had had dental work done on it. That's insane. That's crazy. It's very extensive dental work. Yeah. I'm surprised nobody has dental records to match that. I know. One of her teeth had been worked on up to seven times. That's not common. Where are the dental records for her? Why hasn't she been identified through dental records? I wish I knew. The dentist then pulled three of Jane Doe's teeth to take a closer look. They found a filling on one of the teeth that wasn't available to dentists prior to 2004. So that meant Jane Doe had died sometime after that year, which is where we got that date of death earlier. Gotcha, that makes sense. They estimated that Jane Doe was likely a, quote, lower-income woman who had many cavities and may have grown up where the water wasn't fluoridated. She probably lacked top-notch dental insurance that would have covered crowns, but may have had a cheaper plan that paid for fillings, end quote. One of the dentists noted that Jane Doe had what they referred to as, quote-unquote, patchwork dentistry, which is when dental problems are fixed when they have to be instead of being prevented. That makes a lot more sense on why she had so much dental work done. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where you can't afford to have preventative care. And so when a problem gets bad enough that you have to fix it, it's too late to undo it. Yeah. 
Even so, she had clearly been to the dentist a lot since every single tooth had been worked on. And according to the dentist, the work was very well done. This dental work is extremely unique and I think it could be a really amazing lead in finding her identity. I agree 100%. I'm just so surprised that they haven't matched this to anybody yet. It's just crazy. Maybe they need to put out like a public call to all dentists in the region and be like, hey, if you've done extensive work on a woman who died after 2004, come forward. We need your help in identifying this woman. I think that's a great idea. In 2015, Jane Doe's remains were buried in Beaver County with a headstone that reads, quote, Jane Doe, end quote. Now that we know the facts about Jane Doe's case, let's dive into the theories. And of course, with such a bizarre case, the theories are as equally bizarre. At first, investigators believed that perhaps someone had desecrated a grave and stolen this woman from her resting place. That's what I thought. But that theory didn't really pan out. There was just no evidence to support it. No graves in the area showed any signs of it. I guess that makes a lot of sense. Because that's where my mind immediately went, that that must have been what happened. But if there was no evidence, and she was probably from this region anyways, that's very strange. Then investigators wondered if Jane Doe could be missing from a funeral home or a medical school like I mentioned earlier. This theory wasn't too improbable because both institutions do have remains that are preserved through an embalming process. But no one they contacted was missing any remains, and medical schools have pretty strict in and out records. Like, they know what comes in and they know what goes out. They don't just lose track of a body, in theory. And so, investigators had to question the plausibility of that theory as well. However, there was still one huge thing tripping investigators up, and it was the precise surgical light cuts present on Jane Doe's remains. It was too professional. This leads us to the theory that police are now backing. Police now believe that the most likely scenario is that Jane Doe's head was removed by people who are known as body brokers. What in the world is that? A body broker is someone on the black market that sells body parts from bodies donated to science. Oh no, I don't like where this is going. Michelle Vitali, who I mentioned earlier because she did the forensic reconstructions, is an anatomy professor at Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania. She agrees with the theory that this Jane Doe may have been a victim of the professional body trade industry. She said, quote, she was dismembered professionally. It's a part of the body parts trade, end quote. Again, I really took one for the team here and did a deep dive into the body broking trade. I read a lot of things that I would rather have not read. So if you research this subject on your own, just be wary. Also, if you don't want to hear this, this is your content warning to go ahead and skip this part. Let's get into it. I got a lot of this information from Reuters. They published an article in 2015 and another article in 2017 about Jane Doe and her possible connection to the body broking industry. Again, body broking is the black market selling of human body parts, often from bodies that were originally donated to science. According to the Beaver County District Attorney, Anthony Barash, quote, there's a black market on body parts and that market is pretty extensive, end quote. I don't even know what to say about this. Who's buying these? What's the market for this? I don't understand. Yeah, really? What's the point? I don't know. This is going to get weird. I don't understand illegal activities. I don't either. (laughs) 
Now, you might be thinking that this sounds like a really outlandish theory, but body broking is not a new thing on the black market, and there have been many instances of people pretending to be medical, scientific, funerary, or healthcare professionals to get people to donate their body to science and then use it for monetary gain on the black market instead. Yikes. Specifically, I can think of one instance I read about where people were preying on families by offering them free cremation services if they donated their loved one's body to science because cremation and funerals are expensive and they were preying on that and saying, you can't afford this, but if you donate them to us, we will take care of that for you without telling them what was really going to be happening. People suck. People are kind of the worst. Yeah. All of this is absolutely disgusting and totally unimaginable to me, and it actually turned my stomach to read this. I really didn't venture far into the available literature about body broking because it was just really hard for me to stomach, so I don't know for sure that all body broking is 100% illegal or if it's just highly unregulated and super shady, so keep that in mind. I don't like that. <laughs> Not only is body broking far more prevalent than we would like to believe, it is also almost impossible to track. According to Reuters, quote, bodies and parts can be bought, sold, and leased across America with relative ease. That makes determining the origins of the remains, like the head found in economy, difficult, if not impossible, end quote. Again, Vitali, the anatomy professor, agreed, quote, there's just so many places where you can get these parts, but it's hard to trace back, end quote. Now, there are several pieces of evidence that indicate to investigators that Jane Doe may have been a part of the black market body trade. The first is the rubber balls that were found in Jane Doe's eye sockets with the eye caps over the top. I don't know if I explained this earlier, but eye caps are a tool used to keep the eyelid shut after preparing the body for viewing. Remember that the use of the red rubber balls was essentially unheard of, and investigators and mortuary experts had never seen anything like it. But the red rubber balls weren't all about Jane Doe's eyes that alarmed investigators. It also alarmed them that both of Jane Doe's entire eyes were gone. Here's why this is so weird and doesn't seem super above the board. If you are an organ donor and your eyes are donated, the organ donation center won't remove your entire eye. At least not any time in the recent past, they won't. Yeah, it's just like your corneas, right? Yes. According to Wes Culp, the deputy press secretary for the Pennsylvania Department of Health, quote, an eye bank or an organ procurement organization would only remove the cornea from the eye, end quote. Reuters notes that a body broker, unlike an organ donation center, might remove the entire eye so that it could be sold for research purposes. Organ donation centers are highly regulated and operate under really strict laws, but obviously body brokers are not. Even so, the red rubber balls are still somewhat of a mystery to investigators. There are cheaper and more widely used ways to fill the space where the eyes used to be. The red balls just seemed like something that a professional would never do, but the eye caps were very professional, so it's really a puzzle to investigators. It's really, really strange that they used the red rubber balls, but then still used the eye caps. Like, is that something that they've seen in other cases with the body brokers? This is just a one-off thing? Or is there just not a lot that's known about what body brokers actually do? It's just something that we know happens. I think it's a combination. I don't think there's that much known about the way body brokers operate. But I also think that even in the body broking industry, the red rubber balls was not common. 
very strange. I wonder if they could track that back to somebody as like their quote signature. That's really disgusting. But you know what I mean? Like maybe yeah. there's this one body broker that when they take the eyes, they've used the red rubber balls and maybe that could help figure out who did this to her and figure out her identity. I can't believe I'm just like I'm saying this as a sentence. I never thought that I would be having this train of thought because this is disgusting, but okay. The next piece of evidence connecting Jane Doe back to body broking is the actual incisions made on her remains. I mentioned this earlier, but the cut beneath Jane Doe's skin was smooth and professional. And also, whoever had done this had taken great care to remove the cervical spine from Jane Doe's remains. Vitale said, quote, We could see that the whole purpose of that was to access the key joint that would preserve both the head and the vertebral column, thereby maximizing the profitability of both, end quote. That's gross. When x-rays of the head were completed, investigators' suspicions were confirmed. The vertebrae were missing. Again, the cuts were precise, and this was not a procedure that could have been performed by an amateur. Investigators believed all of this was very typical of body broking, but they couldn't be sure. Economy Police Chief Michael O'Brien, who I mentioned earlier, actually said that the investigators were considering purchasing a human head to compare it to Jane Doe's and see if the parts removed and the cuts were similar. They also wanted to see how difficult it would actually be to buy a human head. I think I'm actually speechless right now. I don't know what to say. However, investigators decided not to go forth with this plan. They figured that any body broker they contacted would vet them and realize that they were investigators or had ties to the investigation and then refused to sell to them. Now, Zoe, are you ready for something completely out of left field? When Reuters, the newspaper I got a lot of this information from, learned that the investigators were not going to move forward with their plan, Reuters decided to do it themselves. So, Reuters contacted a body broker in Tennessee that they had worked with previously for an investigative series about the body trade. The broker informed them that he could sell them human heads for $300 each, plus shipping. So, Reuters agreed and purchased two human heads which they then sent to a medical researcher to compare to the photos of Jane Doe's head. The cuts on all three heads were similar, further supporting the theory that Jane Doe may have originated from the body trade. So something else that's also jumping out at me that could indicate that Jane Doe is part of the body trade theory is the fact that investigators think she's from a lower income household. She had all those cavities and the patchwork dentistry, and you said that the people who do this body trade stuff prey on individuals who can't afford cremation or can't afford funerary proceedings. I think that the fact that she was likely a lower income woman suggests that she was probably preyed on by these body traders even more. I think you bring up an amazing point and it's one that I didn't even think of because I was just so wrapped up in this case, but you're absolutely right. Her profile is exactly the type of person that we know that these people like to prey on. So I think you're right. I think that ties her back even further. Now that you know the evidence supporting the body trade theory, we're going to move on to what can be done next in this case. I know that investigators are holding out hope that DNA testing can advance far enough to allow for the identification of Jane Doe, but there are still things we can do in the meantime. We can share the pictures of Jane Doe's reconstructions and hope that someone recognizes her. 
we can continue searching obituaries and death records in the areas the isotopes indicated she lived in. But most importantly, we can remember this Jane Doe. This case was hard for us to stomach recording, and I know it was hard for you guys to listen to. But Jane Doe is so much more than just an unbelievable story ripped from the pages of a crime novel. She has suffered so much in death, and I hope that one day she can rest in peace with her name returned to her. If you recognize Jane Doe or you have any information about her case, please contact the authorities. Their contact information is available on our website, theunnamedoe.com. We also post all the pictures we discuss in episodes on the website, as well as our Instagram, which is at theunnamedoe__pod. You can contact us on both the website and our Instagram, and we love to hear from you guys, so please reach out to us. All right, now we actually have a short update for our patrons and anyone considering joining our Patreon. Right now, patrons get one miniature episode about an unidentified person and one full-length episode about a missing person per month but we're switching it up. You're still going to get your mini episode about an unidentified person, but now there are going to be three types of full-length episodes that you might get. The first is still missing people. If we have a missing persons case that we want to cover or one we mention in one of our main feed episodes, we're still gonna cover it on our Patreon. The second type of episode will be infamous cases. These will be full-length cases about unidentified remains cases that are infamous in the true crime world, including cases like the boy in the box and the cheerleader in the trunk. We try to cover lesser known cases on our main feed, but if you want to start hearing these more infamous cases, head over to Patreon. And finally, our third full-length episode category will be identified cases. These will be episodes about John and Jane Doe's who have been identified. These will probably make up the bulk of our full-length Patreon episodes, so if you are someone who likes the cases that have closure because they've been solved, you can find that on our Patreon. We'll still cover them occasionally on our main feed, but they'll be more common on the Patreon. Also, our Patreon is only $5 a month, and we donate a portion back to organizations working to solve cold cases. But you don't have to join our Patreon to make a difference. Sharing these cases with friends and family, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving us a five-star rating wherever you're listening are all ways that you can help us share these cases with more people and hopefully get them to the people that need to hear them to solve these cold cases. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. This episode was researched and written by Madden Delaney. All editing and music was done by Zoe Reese.